Bible claims for itself that it is of divine origin, that it is the inspired word of God. And as such, because it's God's word, it's authoritative, it's true, and it's trustworthy. And we've also seen how the Bible came to be from the story of the Bible itself. So as you read through the Bible, the Bible tells you a, a bit about how it was written. You know, God told Moses, write these things down. God told Joshua, write these things down, and so on. And so we see through the story of the Bible how God had people write down his words and then how he had those people preserve those, that covenant communication to his people and how his people treasured that. So today... You know, so we've considered the Old Testament, a bit about the Apocrypha and the New Testament. So today we're going into new territory. And we're kind of considering after the, after the New Testament was written or after the Bible was written down, what happened next? Um, and so we're turning our attention now to church history to see how we got the Bible through ancient copies and translations of the Bible. As we get started, I'm going to read from Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. It says, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate, and they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday. So if you think we've got long services... They were there from morning until midday before the men and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Ananiah and Urijah and Hilkiah and Maaseiah. On his right hand and on his left hand, Padiah and Mishael and Malchiah and Hashum and Hashbadana, Zechariah and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodijah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, and the Levites caused the, people, caused the people to understand the law. Or some translations say they gave the sense of the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that we have your word, and we pray that this morning as we gather that we would receive your word with humility and gladness, that we would be full of thankfulness for all that you have done for us over the span of our lives and over the span of this congregation over the last 20 years. Father, we pray that you would continue to create us, shape us, and form us in your likeness through your word, and that you would continue to do that today for your name's sake. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1947, a shepherd boy named Muhammad Adib was watching his sheep on the northwest side of the Dead Sea. And he stumbled upon some caves uh, in the rocks, and he thought that maybe some of his sheep had wandered in there. And so he threw a rock into the cave, hoping that if there were any sheep in there, that he might startle them out or, 
or hear them scurrying around or bleeding or whatever sheep do. And when he threw the rock into the cave, instead of hearing a sheep, he heard a crash. He heard the smashing of pottery. And so Muhammad scrambled up into that cave and he found, not his sheep, but pottery, these big pots. And inside those pots were scrolls. And when Muhammad first discovered, the little shepherd boy discovered seven scrolls in that cave. And these were the scrolls that we would come to know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in the following years, as word got out of what had been discovered, lots of people would descend on that area and explore what they could. And in 10 caves, they found some 900 documents uh, that we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, hopefully, I have a picture that I can show you of the area. <clears throat> so this is the, the area, this is the Dead Sea, that's why we call them the Dead Sea Scrolls, and where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered is in the, the northwest corner of the Dead Sea, so it's kind of the top left corner of that picture. Um, and I can zoom in a bit and show you. So these pictures, by the way, if you've ever been to the Museum of the Bible, I took these pictures at the Museum of the Bible. Um, and they have a huge display about the Dead Sea Scrolls there. They're very significant, which is why we're talking about it this morning. Um, but you can see there kind of how they plot out the different caves where they found all of these different scrolls. So today, we have over 900 documents found in 10 caves from this region. And more than 200 of those scrolls are, are fragments or copies of the Old Testament books of the Bible. And some 700 scrolls are commentaries on the Old Testament books of the Bible. And then there are some other scrolls that talk about the community who made these scrolls. It talks a little bit about their history and a bit about their rules for living as a community. So from these documents, we understand that the people who produced what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls, were a group of scribes known as the Qumran community who withdrew to the desert between 250 BC and 70 AD, right? So this is about 200 years before Jesus, and then they were, we think, uh, still making these copies and still living together during the time of Jesus. This community, they weren't exactly monks, of course, because uh, that would come along later, but there are similarities in the way that the community functions. So you wouldn't be too far off uh, if you thought of it that way because they withdrew from larger society. They had special rules for their community. Some of them would be quite strict rules um, and they were committed to copying the biblical texts. And we'll talk a bit about what that looked like. So to give you a picture of how biblical texts were often copied around this time, I'll share with you a bit uh, that comes from a chapter written by Paul Wegner, uh, who's a professor and scholar in a book called Understanding Scripture. And he gives a, an outline of different scribal communities that we know of uh, and some of their rules for how they copied the biblical texts. So Wegner says that manuscripts copied before the first century AD show two tendencies on the part of the scribes. They preserved the accuracy of the text, so that's the first thing, and at the same time, they were willing to revise or update the specific words of the text. 
and I'll show you a bit about what that might look like here in just a second. So, the, and he says, Wegner says, these tendencies to preserve the accuracy of the text and to revise or update specific words are not contradictory. Scribes assigned to the scripture a high degree of authority and upheld them with great reverence, but their desire was that the readers understand them. So, if I can move this slide ahead. So, this is a picture of part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I believe this is from what they call the Great Isaiah Scroll, which is the mo one of the most complete Dead Sea Scrolls we have. And what I'm wanting to show you there, if you can see it, is that third line down, there's kind of two lines and then a gap, and then there's a third line. And the third line down, you can see a correction. Uh, as the scribe is going along, uh, they made a correction. And it, I don't know if that's their own mistake, if they were writing along and they were like, oops, and they kind of scratched it out and wrote the correct word above it, uh, or if they were looking at another document and making an adjustment. But that is a kind of example that I noticed when I was looking at the scrolls. And then, in this photo, just to show you the reverence that scribes would have for the text and for their work, uh-oh, oh, there we go. Um, if you look in the second line, or in the fifth line, or in the seventh line, you see those dots? There's like four dots, dot, 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 dot. Um, what they're doing there is, is scribes w had a high regard for the divine name, Yahweh. Um, and they wouldn't say it. They didn't want to break the commandment not to take the Lord's name in vain. And they revered the divine name so highly that here, this particular scribal community didn't even write the letters out. So where you see those four dots, those are a substitute for the four letters in the divine name, Y-H-W-H. Um, so they had a high regard for God's name and a high regard for the work that they were doing. And again, these are from the Museum of the Bible. You can, if you go to the Museum of the Bible, you'll see what I'm showing you there on the screen. Some examples of some of the rules that scribes would have. One set of scribes... Um, called the soparim, which is actually the word for scribe, but that word can also mean count. Um, they counted all the letters of the Torah, and this is not uncommon, to either count the letters or the words to make sure that they didn't add anything or take away. So if they were, if they were writing a page and then they counted and they realized their count was off, they knew they made a mistake somewhere. Um, and again, they would not, some of them would not just count the words, but they would even count the letters. Um, and they did that to make sure that they were being accurate. Or another group of scribes called the Tanaim, which means the repeaters, uh, they maintained the sacred traditions from AD 100 to 300. So this is around the time of the early church, uh, this particular community, the Tanaim. They developed meticulous rules to follow when copying synagogue scrolls. And the Talmud describes some of that. The Talmud says that every skin, now they would copy scripture onto calf skins or goat skins. That's why it says the word skin. Every skin must contain a certain number of columns equal throughout the entire codex. The length of each column must not extend over less than 48 or more than 60 lines. So it's saying that every text, every column has to have between 48 and 60 lines and the breadth must consi consist of 30 letters. So it had a rule for like how, how many letters you could have in a column. And I have some pictures of scrolls where they would, they would lengthen a letter to make sure that they, they got that right. 
An authentic copy must be the exemplar from which the transcriber ought not in the least to deviate. No word or letter. Or no word or letter must be written from memory. The scribe not having looked at the codex before him. So that particular rule is saying, like, you can't just copy this down from memory. Even if you know it, you have to have a text in front of you that you're copying from. Another rule was that if a page had three or more mistakes, it had to be destroyed uh, or thrown away and remade. Um, and if you've ever been in my office and I have a scroll on the wall there, the reason I have that scroll on the wall is because there were defective, there were def uh, errors in the scroll as a whole, and so they had to cut it up. Um, and my professor, my Hebrew professor, got a copy of the cut up versions that they were throwing away and gave them to his students. Um, but when they have defections in the text, they would not use it uh, for reading or for teaching and study. Um, there are other rules uh, that are interesting, but uh, I'll move on from there. Just so you know, though, that communities like the Qumran community that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls had very meticulous, careful rules about the work that they were doing, and that's common for scribal work over the centuries, whether we're talking about Jewish folks copying their scripture or Christians copying their scripture. So what do we learn from the Dead Sea Scrolls? Lots. Um, our copies of the Hebrew Old Testament, and this is the, the greatest takeaway, is that our copies of the Hebrew Old Testament were transmitted incredibly accurately. Uh, and I'm not as great with PowerPoint as I am with a whiteboard, so I'll try to illustrate for you what the Dead Sea Scrolls did for us. So here's us today around the 2000s. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947. Okay, and at the time, at 1947, the oldest copies of the Hebrew Old Testament that we had were from around the year 1000 AD, all right? But scripture was written between, the Old Testament was written between 1400 BC and 400 BC. So the documents we had were a long way off from when the text was written. Uh, and my drawing's probably not to scale here. Because when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls were made around the year 200 BC. So we jumped 1,200 years back in our witness to the Old Testament documents. In other words, the Dead Sea Scrolls brought us so much closer to when the biblical texts were actually written. And so what the scholars then had an opportunity to do is to say, oh, okay, how accurate are these documents written in the 1000s? How close are they to what was copied down 1200 years before? And what, what would they find? And what they found was that it was incredibly accurate. So take this for instance. Uh, this T.D. Alexander writes this. He says, the scrolls confirmed that the medieval copies that we have preserve accurately the text of the Hebrew Bible. When the book of Isaiah, again, that's what you're looking at on the screen, and remember, Isaiah is a big book, right? 66 chapters. This isn't a small book. When the book of Isaiah was, in the medieval copies, was compared with the manuscripts from Qumran, scholars concluded that only a dozen or so copyist errors needed to be removed from the medieval text of Isaiah. And almost all of these changes involve correcting only one or two letters in the Hebrew. So what that means is, in the, in the example of Isaiah, 
is that for 1,200 years, the text is preserved incredibly accurately. It does not go through big changes. There are some little things that they think could be updated or corrected. So the big lesson that we learned from the Dead Sea Scrolls is that our texts that we have were preserved with incredible accuracy. So uh, here I'll pause. Uh, I don't pretend to be an expert about the Dead Sea Scrolls, but I'll pause for any questions or comments that you might have about these, and then we'll talk about the Septuagint. Yes, Mike. Yeah, so good question. So one of the main ways that they're going to do that is uh, in the, um, well, one of the ways is actually, there's several. One of the ways is if you see the script on the screen, we know, generally speaking, when that kind of script was being used. If you open a Hebrew Bible today, it'll look a little bit like that, but it'll also look fairly different from that. There's no vowels in that text, for instance, um, and vowels were added later on. So there's some things about the, the way it was written. There are some things that are over my head about the actual like materials itself and how they can date that. Another one that I can understand a little bit better is just some of the historical writings when the community talks about itself, uh, what it makes reference to and what it doesn't make reference to are also good indicators about when it would be written. Yeah, these don't come with a stamp that says like 200 BC. That'd be convenient. Um, but there are lots of ways that with a high degree of confidence we could say, okay, it's, it's in here somewhere. Yeah. Yes. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and the, yeah, so Donna was just saying, like, the, the caves where they found these, it's not like you could just, like, walk into the cave, right? Like, they're, they're like, up a hill or up a cliff, even. Um, yeah, and so the, I don't know enough about the Qumran community to know all the reasons why they were doing that, but the, those scrolls were in 10 caves for 1,200 years, and nobody knew they were there uh, until they were stumbled upon. Uh, it's, it was a remarkable discovery. There are entire books written. I mean, the, the, if you go to the Museum of the Bible, they've got like half a floor for the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, it was a huge discovery. Yes, Tim. Yeah, I don't know the direct answer to that, but um, I know that some of the scrolls are entire books, like Isaiah is the most obvious one. Uh, and others are fragmentary, um, but it is um, it is a lot of the Old Testament, if not all of it. I'm not sure the numbers, yeah. But there's 200 documents that we have that are of Old Testament books, yeah. Yeah, good question. Yes, again. Yeah, that's another good question. Uh, from my memory, I don't remember hearing of any um, what we would consider errant scriptures. So for instance, the Apocrypha, the Apocryphal books, the Pseudepigraphal books were not part of this to my understanding. Um, and that is because the, the Jewish community, there aren't, we don't even have any Hebrew documents of the Apocrypha or Pseudepigraphal books. Uh, and these were all Hebrew texts of the Hebrew scriptures. 
um, and commentaries on those, yeah. So there might be other, in the commentaries, you know, there'd be commentaries or, um, yeah, community rules that would have been considered different than the authoritative biblical texts, but you might have found them together, yeah. All right, let's talk about the Septuagint. So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The word Septuagint means 70. And it is so named for the number of translators who worked on the project. We'll talk a little bit about that in a second. Uh, sometimes the translation is represented, uh, if you're reading about it, um, you'll see it represented by the Roman numerals for 70 and LXX. Uh, it was produced between 285 and 246 BC, and it's the first translation of the Bible we know of. It's the first time that the biblical texts were translated into another language. And again, this is the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, being translated into Greek. And uh, it's, the Septuagint is incredibly important and has a lot of value, as we'll see here in a second. So. Let's talk about the origins of the Septuagint. Um, a prominent account of the origin of the Septuagint comes from the letter of Aristeus, uh, which was written between 150 and 110 BC. So this letter that we have that tells the story about the Septuagint is from the time, it's about 100 years after the Septuagint was written. And the story goes like this, that Egyptian pharaoh, Ptolemy Philadelphus, was assembling a great library and one of his advisors said, if you're going to make a great library, you really need to get a copy of the Hebrew scriptures. So Ptolemy was like, good idea. Let's send some ambassadors up there and see if we can get a copy. And so they went up to Eleazar, the high priest at the time, and asked for a copy of the Hebrew scriptures. Not only did he give him a copy of the Hebrew scriptures, but he gave him a really nice one, the story goes, with gold letters. And so Ptolemy was thrilled. They brought the Hebrew scriptures back uh, to Egypt. And, um, and then the story goes that he commissioned, uh, Pharaoh Ptolemy commissioned 72 translators uh, to translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek. Now, some of us might be thinking, well, why in Egypt would they be translating the Bible into Greek? Remember, they're living in a Hellenized world. If you remember the word Hellenized, it's, it's, it's heavily influenced by Greek culture and society after Alexander the Great went through and wiped everybody out and had a Greek influence on all these places. So they're, they're speaking a Greek language um, in Egypt, and the story goes that these 72 translators then went to translate the Hebrew text into Greek, and uh, it took them 72 days, amazingly enough. And uh, then they invoked a curse on anybody who altered the text. It's challenging to know how accurate that story is. Uh, we have many divergent versions of that origin story. Um, so we don't put a ton of... Uh, emphasis uh, on that particular story, historians and scholars. Um, Bruce Metzger, who's a, a biblical scholar, he offers what's generally considered to be a more likely origin for the Septuagint. He says this, quote, the actual motive for undertaking the work is now generally agreed that arose from the liturgical, so that's the worship, and educational needs of the large Jewish community in Alexandria. So Alexandria is a a big city in Egypt. Um, many members of this community had forgotten their Hebrew or let it grow rusty and spoke only the common Greek of the Mediterranean world. 
but they remained Jews and wanted to understand the scriptures on which their faith and life depended, close quote. So uh, that's the, our best guess as to how the Septuagint came to be, that they're Jewish people, they're dispersed all over the Mediterranean world, and in Egypt they realized that they, there was distance, there was a gap between themselves and the biblical texts, and they wanted to understand the text, so they, they had it translated into Greek. And that's certainly how this translation functioned. It functioned like this. It was, it was created by Jewish people for Jewish people, and for hundreds of years, that's how the Septuagint was used. In the fullness of time, the Septuagint would become the Bible of the early Christians. Um, and we'll talk about how they used it in just a moment. The Septuagint went through revisions, uh, like all translations. The Septuagint went through revisions. Metzger says, the earliest copies of the Septuagint being made by hand would soon come to differ among themselves according to the judgment and accuracy of the scribes making them. And eventually the text became so unreliable that in the third century, Origen, uh, who's an early Christian bishop, uh, made a heroic attempt to purify it. So Origen put together a massive book we call the Hexapla. I think I have a picture of it. Yep. So the Hexapla uh, had six columns uh, most of the time where it would have a column for the, the Hebrew original. So remember, we're talking about the Old Testament still. So it would have a column for the Hebrew Old Testament, and then it would have... Um, the Hebrew words, but with Greek letters in another column, and then it had four columns of different versions of the Septuagint, different versions of the Greek translations. And he did this so that people could, scholars could kind of compare them and see what the differences were and try to make judgments about what was the best translation or what was originally written. Some early Christians considered the Septuagint to be su the superior version of the Old Testament. So um, the early uh, church bishop Irenaeus uh, told the stories of how the, the ancient kings, when they received the Septuagint, considered that it had been translated through the inspiration of God. Uh, or Augustine considered the Septuagint to be re-inspired uh, when it was translated. Metzger says, at an early stage, the belief developed that this translation had been divinely inspired, and hence, the way was open for several church fathers to claim that the Septuagint presented the words of God more accurately than the Hebrew Bible. And the fact that after the first century, very, very few Christians had any knowledge of the Hebrew language meant that the Septuagint was not only the church's main source of the Old Testament, but was, in fact, its only source of the Old Testament. So what he's saying there is that people, uh, Christians, in the early first few hundred years of the church, they didn't know Hebrew, and they thought that the Greek translation was re-inspired, and so they didn't have much of an interest in the Hebrew anymore. Now, that was not the consensus view among the early church. Not everybody thought that, but it wasn't uncommon either, especially in the Greek-speaking world, right? Um, but of course, the church wasn't confined to the Greek-speaking world. There's Christians all over the place, and there, we might mention this next week, but Christians in different parts of the world are translating the Bible into Syriac, uh, into lots of other translations. And those translations were used and revered in different parts of the world as authoritative. Um, and as we'll see, uh, Jerome, when he made the Latin Vulgate, he actually went back to the Hebrew uh, texts of the Old Testament. So that wasn't the consensus view, but it was a it was a major view in the Greek-speaking world that 
The Septuagint was the superior translation. Well, what do we learn from the Septuagint? First, since we're talking about it, the idea that there is a superior version of the Bible is not a new idea. Uh, it's actually something of a trend in church history. And we'll actually see this is the, just the earliest version of it that we know. Um, but it happens here with the Septuagint, which is the first translation of the Bible. It happens again with the Vulgate. If you know about uh, the Reformation and Roman Catholic history, the Vulgate would be seen as the superior translation. And you weren't allowed to make translations of that, which is why Wycliffe and Tyndale would, uh, would have to give their lives, literally, for translating the Bible. Uh, the view that the Septuagint was superior, I mentioned this before, is, is also like historically we just have to realize that the idea that the Septuagint was superior, is you can trace that very much to the fact that the people who thought it was superior didn't know Hebrew. And that's just kind of convenient, right? That the superior version of the Bible happens to be in your language. Uh, and it takes away some of the stress or work of having to learn the Hebrew. And remember, this is also why we started with our theology. Remember what we learned about the doctrine of inspiration. We believe that God inspired what was originally written. We do not believe that inspiration applies to the translation process as such. Translations are inspired to the degree that they reflect the original. And as we'll see, others recognized this and operated on that principle. So that's one thing we learned from the Septuagint. Another thing that we just want to appreciate about the Septuagint, again, is that it's the first translation of the Bible. Uh, it's the first time that the Bible is translated into another language. And um, so we want to praise God for that and thank God for that. And as we'll see in a minute, the New Testament validates and authorizes that. Um, the Septuagint translators are witnesses to ancient Hebrew documents. So this is another benefit we have from the Septuagint, and it, it kind of goes along with this timeline here. The Septuagint was created around the time that the Dead Sea Scrolls were written. And so whatever the Septuagint translators were looking at was at least that old, but probably older, right? Uh, so it's kind of like this. If you're ever driving along a, a Lancaster country road or even in the city, I've seen it both places. If you're driving and you can't see around the corner, right? There's like a building or some, some obstruction that blocks you from seeing around the corner. Sometimes there'll be a mirror on right in front of you, like a convex mirror, if I'm getting my convex and concave right, it'd be a convex mirror that's bent so it helps you see around the corner. So it helps you see what you can't see directly. The Septuagint's kind of like that for biblical texts. History is blocking us from certain very old Hebrew texts, but the Septuagint functions like a mirror and it, it lets us see what the Septuagint translators are translating and it, it gives us a peek at what they were looking at in their Hebrew versions of the Old Testament. I hope that makes sense. Um, the Septuagint, another benefit of it is that it's quoted in the New Testament. Um, so Metzger says, it was the Bible of the early church, and when the Bible is quoted in the New Testament, it is almost always the Septuagint's version. So I want to give you just one example of this. One example is from Matthew 21.16. In Matthew 21.16, Jesus quotes from Psalm chapter 8, verse 2. In the Hebrew, Psalm 8, verse 2 says, the, uses the phrase ordained strength. That's the Hebrew phrase that's used there. But when Jesus quotes Psalm 8, verse 2, he uses the phrase perf perfected praise. Um, and I'm going really quickly, but if you went and looked at this, it's talking about how 
um, praise comes from the mouth of children. Um, and so Jesus is quoting from the Septuagint there in Matthew 21, 16. Uh, and if you just, if, if you have your Bible, if you look at Matthew 21, 16 and Psalm 8, 2, you'll notice that difference. And the reason for the difference is the Septuagint. Uh, one commentator named Plumer, he says, this shows that it is lawful to make a free use of a version, even if it be not perfect, as indeed no work of uninspired man can be. So, and, and all throughout the New Testament, we see New Testament authors quoting the Septuagint, which validates translation work as authoritative, because that's how the New Testament authors are using it, as the word of God. So translations, the New Testament considers translations to be authoritative, true, and trustworthy, just like we do. The Septuagint also validates a range of translation methods. So just for the sake of time, because I want to talk about the Vulgate. The Septuagint, some parts of it are very literal, some parts of it are very interpretive. And the New Testament using it, and, um, and uh, the early church using it, validates a range of translation methods that can be helpful. Uh, there's more that could be said about that, and we'll talk more about translation methods later in the class. Um, the Septuagint also illustrates the importance of a translation into the common language of the people. Again, the reason they're translating it into Greek is because that's what the people spoke. We'll talk about that again with the Vulgate. And the Septuagint, last thing I'll say about the Septuagint, is the Septuagint influences your Bibles. Yes, yours, the versions that you're using. The reason that you have the Old Testament in the order that you do is because that's how the Septuagint does it. That is not how the Hebrew Bible does it. The Hebrew Bible is a different order of the books of the Bible, and our English versions follow the Septuagint. That's because our English versions follow the Vulgate, and the Vulgate follow the Septuagint. So now you know. Um, all right, now I'm going to pause before I talk about the Vulgate for any comments or questions about the Septuagint. Yes, Emily. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people in Palestine specifically, so Jesus is in Israel, is in the land of Israel. People in Israel would have been bilingual or trilingual. So speaking either Aramaic, which is similar to Hebrew, or Greek. Um, remember when Jesus was crucified, it's in Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. Um, so uh, we think that some of the scrolls, like in the synagogues, would have been in Hebrew and maybe that some of those would have been in Greek. The further along you go in history, there would have been more Greek. And the further you get away from Israel, it's definitely going to be Greek. So when, when Paul's in different places, when Peter's dispersed, like when they're, when they're spread out, it's going to be more Greek and less Hebrew. Uh, and the closer you are to Israel and Jerusalem specifically, there would be more Hebrew influence. Yeah. So, so they would have had... Uh, in, a, in most places, when the New Testament authors are writing, in the synagogues, they would have had a version of the Septuagint. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, 
the, to answer the first question, Origen didn't know Hebrew. Um, so he is putting together texts that he had access to, but he doesn't have any facility in the language, uh, which again is one of the, one of the challenges or, or problems and the preference for the Septuagint. Um, the, as far as I understand, the Septuagint, the different versions and columns he has, are produced by different scholars over the years, right? And so this is part of the, the challenge that the church knew that they had, is they had, you know, I'm going to slightly make up names here, like Theodosian's version, and then like this other guy's version, and they're like, well, how do we make these match? So Origen put them all together. He said, all right, like, let's, let's compare them. And so he put this all down so that they could be compared. And they don't all match up very well uh, sometimes, which is part of the challenge and part of the reason for that, the reason he put all that together. Yeah. Yeah, so technically speaking, as far as I understand, again, the, the Septuagint, uh, yeah, would there are various versions or editions of the Septuagint. Yeah. So at one point, there was, you know, an original, but again, as it's getting copied by hand uh, and spreading out through the Greek-speaking world, it's getting adjusted, modified, uh, according to the skill of the scribe, yeah. And so over hundreds of years, it's getting changed quite a bit to the point that they're like, all right, we need to try to reconcile these things. Yeah. Tom and then Emily, yeah. Yeah, the Septuagint was, was created around the same time as the Dead Sea Scrolls. So it, it's made in like the 250s BC, around that time. Yeah. And Origins like four or five hundred years later. Yeah. And? Yeah. That's a great question. So the vast majority of our Bibles, there might be some exceptions to this. Uh, so like the Greek Orthodox Church, if you've ever been in a Greek Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, their Old Testament is based on the Septuagint. Um, almost all of our Bibles that I'm aware of are based on the Hebrew. Sometimes, depending on your translation, sometimes you'll see like a little footnote, and sometimes you might see at the bottom, it'll say Septuagint or LXX and it'll tell you where there's a different reading in the Septuagint that scholars think, again, looking at that mirror, bouncing off the mirror and around the corner, think maybe this is the original idea, or maybe this is the original word. Um, or sometimes the translators will actually choose the Septuagint, but that's, that's more rare, uh, that they would choose the Septuagint as being the original version there. All of our English is almost always based on the Hebrew. Yes, Chuck. Yeah. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like the, yeah, so Chuck's pointing out that those variations don't affect, you know, significant issues. And again, most of them are interpretive. Um, and again, translation work is very tricky, and we'll talk specifically about translation later in the class. But a, a great example of that that I've already mentioned is just the Matthew 21 16 and Psalm 8 too, is there a difference between ordained strength and perfected praise? I mean, the perfected praise is likely an interpretive way of talking about the Septuagint. Sometimes the, the, um, the Hebrew will talk about the Lord's right hand, and the Septuagint will say his power. Like, 
the right hand in Hebrew is a metaphor for strength. So the Septuagint, if the Septuagint says strength or power, it's translating the Hebrew idea of a right hand. Um, or when it talks about in Isaiah 6, the Hebrew says, and we're not going to talk about the Vulgate today if Pastor John's worried about that. Um, in, Hebrew, in Isaiah 6, um, it talks about the Lord's train filling the temple. In the Septuagint, it uses the word glory. Well, that's, that's the idea. The Lord's train filling the temple is, is a picture of his glory. And so the Septuagint says glory instead, you know? Um, and again, that, those kinds of issues are how do you translate a word or an idea, which is a whole other conversation. Um, and it's one we'll have, yeah. Any other thoughts or questions about what we've talked about? And then next week we'll talk about the Vulgate and what happens with that. Yeah, and uh, Chuck's talking about how the you can find these things, uh, these all the things we're talking about. Like I have in my office, I have a book of the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you want to see what's in the Dead Sea Scrolls, I have it in my office. I have the Septuagint in my office. You're welcome to come look at it. Um, and yeah, these things you can find them. A lot of them on the internet. Um, yeah, these things are accessible um, to the general population. Any last questions or comments before we conclude? Yeah, Donna. Mm -hmm. The Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that would be awesome to see. And there's, there's, uh, Donna was talking about how the Dead Sea Scrolls were kind of traveling around in a tour with a bunch of security, and they got, you got to see them in Colorado. Yeah, um, there are. Uh, I'll talk about this some other point in the class, but there are a lot, a lot of these texts and documents that we're talking about we know like where they are you can a lot of them are accessible to the public um, you know the museum of the bible has a bunch of things uh, but sometimes the dead sea scrolls travel around universities have a lot of old old documents that they have pictures of online um, even if you can't go see them um, and yeah so it's uh, again when we one of the takeaways uh, from the class right is is just that when we talk about like how we got the Bible and can we know, like we can have just such a high degree of confidence. Like we can know that we have God's word and, and all these things about like where are the books, where are the texts, what do they say, do they agree, what do we do with that? Like you can see, you can go look at them um, and we can talk about it. We can know that we have God's word and we can figure out what happened when, uh, when we do see change and variation um, and praise God for that. So I'll pray, and then we'll be dismissed. If you want to keep talking, uh, I'll be around. God, we thank you so much for your word. Um, God, we thank you for how much you've let us know about how it came into our hands. Um, God, and we acknowledge and are grateful that you're involved in all of that, that you're sovereign, and that you've given us your word. And I pray that as we consider your, your kingship, your rulership over this universe, uh, this morning, that we would be uh, freshly encouraged by your faithfulness and your goodness to us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.